All right, well, I'm really excited. I had this sermon ready to go, and then I had to wait a whole week on it. Very, very sad. <laughs> but the title of the message today is called Finding God, and we're going to be in Acts 17 today, verses 16 through 34. I haven't forgotten about Daniel, but um, again, we were kind of hitting at it and then stepping away because it's a little a bit of deep waters, and I just think it's helpful sometime to move around a little bit, but don't give up on Daniel. I have not. <laughs> so, um, but if you'll go to Acts chapter 17 in your Bible, we're just going to go ahead and read these verses, and then we'll just kind of discuss this. I think it's a very important message for the time that we find ourselves in. Uh, beginning at the verse, uh, 16th verse of chapter 17, it says, uh, and I don't have it all on the screen there for you, so... So you're going to have to trust me or bring your Bible to church. I got parts of it up there. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. You ever feel like that today? Therefore, he reasoned with the synagogue, with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Oh, my goodness. We could stop right there. Do we take the time to reason with those at work? Do we take the time to reason with anyone anymore? Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, the one who you, whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, Amen. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Amen. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. 
Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. So the title of the message is Finding God. And I think this is an important thing to discuss. How do you find God? And in fact, is, is the world full of people even looking for God? And I think this is a great question. We see the statistics and we keep getting reminded every uh, day by the news that Christianity is losing its grasp in Western culture and in America. And that there is the rising of the nuns, which is not a new religious order of women, but the nuns, N-O-N-E, that on the surveys, when they ask what your religious affiliation is, the younger generations are saying, none, and the nuns are growing. Amen. <laughs> but they're not growing in a way that um, is really the whole story. Because if you talk to a lot of young people, it's not that they've given up religion, that they've given up their belief system, but there is an increasing uh, sense of, I'm not affiliated with any group. And really, I think it's a great opportunity because the truth is, uh, these people are as lost as can be. But instead of lying to us and telling us that I'm an Episcopalian or I'm a Baptist, they're no longer lying to us. And for years in America, it was an advantage in some places to claim a religious affiliation, a Christian denomination. But in this coming generation, it's not an advantage anymore because every world religion does not follow along with the new moral revolution. It's a really hard sell because the Jewish understanding of sexuality and uh, human gender has been the same since Abraham. Islam has been the same since Muhammad. Christianity has been the same since Abraham and through Christ. And so trying to convert all of this over into some sort of new revolutionary understanding of human gender and sexuality is a hard sell to the religious culture of every world religion. And yet, in order to try to placate the world culture and at the same time hold to something, people are saying, I'm none, and yet they find that they want to be something. They want to belong to a group, and they'll try to substitute these groups. I also see that it's interesting the statistics were telling us that we've had an absolute collapse in church attendance, which I think is hilarious because they shut the churches down for a year, and then they told us that church attendance dropped. And it's like, well, shocker, you know? Uh, <laughs> as a Christian, I'm shaking in my boots. Uh, <laughs> We, we've seen a large majority of people come back to the church, and the ones that haven't come back were the flakes. And Jesus died for the flakes. You know that? I'll put that on my Facebook today. Jesus died for the... But the truth is, uh, what we've found is in a lot of churches, the giving has held, because those that were faithful in giving and supporting have continued to be faithful in giving and supporting. And those that were looky-loos that popped in from time to time and left... They're popping in less often, but they're still popping in. But what we have is an opportunity now to cut through the baloney. <laughs> it's a biblical, it's a, it's a place, I think. Um, I've never visited baloney, but I'd like to. I had a friend, actually my brother-in-law, was uh, he went to school in the Bible Belt, and he didn't want to stay in the Bible Belt, because you talked to everybody, and they were all Christians, they were all saved. And it was really hard to try to minister to people who all knew the right things to say, but were lost as could be. And in the West, we've kind of already been here for a while. And if you go to California, they're deep into the lost as can be, and I'll be happy to tell that to you. <laughs> and it's something a little refreshing when you can start on an honest playing field. No one's going to lie to you to make you feel better. And you can immediately start with the gospel. And I would say that we might need to change our gospel approach a little bit in this postmodern world and maybe approach it a little bit differently. You know, 
Uh, I've been studying some things, and uh, it's really convicted me about my evangelistic approach because I want to evangelize like I'm trying to sell a restaurant chain. And I want to tell people why Jesus is so good and, and, and you need Jesus and all of this. And I, I think that there's a reality that we're missing. Christ is on his throne now. And Christ sits on his throne having victory now. And when he stands, you know why he stands? He stands to greet a saint home. We see it in the story of Stephen. Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, rose to his feet to welcome Stephen into eternity. And so I'm kind of approaching it a little differently. My view is Christ is your Lord whether you want to admit it or not. And if you'd like to know the person you're going to bow before one day, I'd be happy to tell you. And if not, I will be kneeling the same day that you kneel when he comes again. I hope that you won't kneel too late. But you will kneel. And Paul is going in with all of his cards on the table. I serve a risen Savior. And he is risen from the dead. Would you like to know that person? And it, it just changes your approach a little bit. People today, I mean, I, I remember, it's so sad that I'm getting so old. 20 years ago. I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this man is not yet 40. Um, they, said it to, they said it to Christ. Um, but soon I will be. <laughs> I took the youth door to door. Uh, this was during my youth camp. I, I used to run a young men's camp called Focus. And we were trying to train these young men to love the Lord. And I think they will someday. We're just, if I could do it over again, I know some things I didn't back then. But we went door to door and we're asking people about uh, Jesus. And I had a little survey and we knock on the door. And I remember little Joseph McMullen with me. And Joseph, before he became a giant, used to be this tall. And uh, we knocked on the door and there was this lady right down the street here. And we said, um, you know, who's Jesus to you? And she says, I love Jesus, and I love everything, and I have some really cool crystals, and I feel like God is with me, and the crystals really help mediate his presence with me. And, and I'm like, well, that, that's really neat. Um, you know, I, we'd just like to invite you to come to our church, and we love Jesus, and we'd like to maybe um, worship, and, and maybe you could get to know a little bit more about the Christ we serve, and we, we went on to the next house. And all I remember is Joseph saying, that lady was weird. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, <laughs> from the mouth of babes, you know, it was, um, but she needed Jesus and we planted a seat, you know, and we went around, we had some people chew us out and call us, uh, you know, call the church and say, quit, you know, get me off your list and all kinds of things. And, uh, but the, the truth is, I wish I could get back into that a little bit because what was Paul doing? He was just, he, he was in Athens for a little stint. He had been planting churches, Corinth, and he's leaving people. I think that's actually when he left um, Titus and Crete, according to my understanding. Um, but he goes there on a stopover, and while he's there, I might as well tell everybody in Athens about Jesus. And he does. And what he does is he finds a way to cut through the baloney, to cut through all the hogwash, and to give them Christ and Christ crucified. And so what do we see? What we have here is a chiasm, which is a fun word. If we had not skipped the letter key in the alphabet when we were identifying uh, variants of COVID, we skipped over key because I think... Um, there's some political reasons for that, but for, for some reason, you know, the president of China is key, and so we skipped that letter. Uh, we went straight to O, Omicron. Yeah, it's, it's kind of neat. Um, but anyway, key in Greek is, is like a little X. And so a chiasm is kind of, it moves to that center point and moves away. And so a chiasm is a way when you're speaking to try to track where you're going and not get lost, or when you're writing in antiquity. They didn't have paragraphs. They didn't even have lowercase letters. 
So imagine trying to write a book with no lowercase letters, no paragraphs or markers. It was a little tricky. Everything was capitalized and there was no spaces. And so what they would do is they developed these devices to try to organize and people that were trained would see it. Well, this whole passage is a chiasm in that Paul's arguing to a center point and stepping away. I have a picture of it. Isn't that beautiful? So we have an introduction, 16 through 17, and a conclusion. Okay, then we have a response of the audience. Paul's going around saying something about a resurrected guy. And at the end, there is a remarks from the audience. Then we kind of break the next section. He introduces the situation and he concludes the situation. And his argument then is broken into three parts. Verses 24 and 25, 28 and 29 surround the main argument of verses 26 through 27. Now, I have good confidence in this because I put this together in my preaching the Greek New Testament class. And so this is true in the Greek as well as the English. I don't always do that, but hey, 2006 I did. And uh, I've been sitting on this for years. Um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> There's a reason that David built Bathsheba a throne. <laughs> so we're going to kind of look at this in that uh, flow. And so the, the first point is going to follow verses 19, 21, and verses 30. And the point is that finding God requires a quest for the truth. So what, we, what do we see? Verse 19, we may know that this new teaching is what you are, is what you are proclaiming. And we find out, so they want to know, but do they really want to know? All the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. I have to confess, this is a sin of my own. We live in such an information age today that what we find ourselves doing is every day opening up whatever app you're using or every six apps that you use and scrolling through all the news, right? And, and I will tell you, being down on COVID, I was getting really bored because I was ahead of the news cycle so much and there was nothing to do. You know, I could have prayed harder. Um, I did pray a little bit more because I was so bored. But I think Satan's really deceived us with all of this stuff throwing at us all the time and 24-hour news cycles that we've had for generations now. Uh, the, the issue is that we're always obsessed with what's new. And we ought to be obsessed with what's old. Maybe the ancient of days. Their desire for truth was superficial. They wanted to know what Paul's new story was because they wanted to know what everybody's new story was. But they weren't really looking for true truth. And then Paul calls them into something deeper. In verse 30, he says, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent. So there is a time of ignorance. Paul actually just calls all of his audience ignorant, which is, you know, it's a different approach. You know, <laughs> if you all weren't so dumb, you know, you know, no. Uh, God is using me as his prophet to reveal something to you. <coughs> And you now stand under judgment because you have heard the gospel. And so we could talk about someone who's never heard, but that's not you. Now that you have heard, God's no longer overlooking your ignorance, but rather he's calling you to repent. So what we have to see here is that unless you're really looking for truth, you're not going to be able to be saved. When we ask ourselves, do we look for truth? I think most of us want to say yes, but is it true? You know, that, that, the hard thing is researching things that you disagree with. Because most of us, what we want to be is affirmed in what we believe. And when we hear something that challenges what we believe, what we immediately do is look for somebody else to confirm what we've always believed because we don't want to deal with that dissidence. 
And I would say to most Christians, uh, we need not be afraid of the other side. In fact, I would say dig deeply in, but hold on to the truth, and you'll find that uh, all of the things that the world throws at us to challenge our faith, they fall flat. In fact, they get stuck in that shield that we're holding that extinguishes the flames of the evil one. But we need to really be interested in truth because truth is something that most people, when they see it, they recognize it. And it reveals the lie for what it is. But when you're trying to search for truth, I would say be humble. Acknowledge the things that you don't know. I love talking to someone who's an atheist because it's the most arrogant position in the universe. You believe there is no God. You know there's no God. That's atheism. It's not, I'm not sure. That's agnosticism. But atheists say there is no God. And you're like, well, how much of all knowledge do you know? 1%? I think that's pretty arrogant in itself. Could God exist in the 99% that you don't? To, to have uh, full knowledge of everything enough to declare there is no God is the most arrogant position ever. And once you reveal that to someone, they, they move quickly to agnosticism. And then they can say, well, I'm not sure he exists. And I can say, well, I am. And here's why I do know. Because I don't have to know everything to know that Christ lives. I only have to know a few small things. What is your source for truth? I'm amazed and ashamed at how little time I spend in the Bible. And I spend a lot of time in the Bible. But if I was to compare how much time I spend in the Bible, I'm using that as a prop, does it compare to how much time I'm spending on the news or entertainment? All right, how many of you have a show you watch every week that's an hour? How many of you spend an hour a week in the Bible? And how many of you um, spend an hour a day in the Bible? You know, if we can get 10 minutes, we're like, yeah, I have pleased the Lord. <laughs> Hopefully, we can do better. We can do better. If we don't know the word, we are set for deception. Because the way that we chest deception is against the word of God. So I, I was remembering as a kid, I loved Legos. My oldest son does not love Legos. Um, but my middle son does. Uh, but he's more artistic than me because I am a by-the-book guy. And I get very upset when I have three or four Legos left at the end of building something. <laughs> and I, I, would, I would follow the instructions, and then I would glue it together. Actually, when I watched the Lego movie and that was the bad guy, I was offended because I, I glued all my stuff together because that was the point. It was to finish it. Uh, I don't like it when people go off book on Legos. It bothers me because I spent money on the pirate ship, and that's what I want to build. Uh, right. Yes, this is your pastor. Pray for me. There's nothing wrong with being creative with things, but most, most of us, God has actually got a blueprint for your life that he's building. And it is, the instructions are in the Bible. It's in the scripture. And if you don't get into the scripture, you're going to go off book. And you may turn into a pirate ship that doesn't float, right? You, you may turn into a half airplane pirate ship that goes to space. Um, <laughs> It's fun for kids. It's not so good for people when we become half sanctified, when we become half um, disciplined in the, in the word, and, and we train our children halfway up in the way that they should go. We need to know the word so that we can really seek the truth. Finding God requires a turning from the spoof. Why did I use spoof? Because it rhymes, and I like that. My mom and I, growing up, we, 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 uh, we joke around because we don't lie, we fib. Right? We, we, have, we have nice words <laughs> that, that conceal the sin, right? Um, 
again, there, there's good fun, but again, spoof is, is more of a fun word, I think, in my mind. But it's also a practical joke. And if you've ever been the butt of a practical joke, it's not fun. No. And many people today are the butt, uh, the butt of Satan's big practical joke, right. a big scheme. He perpetuated it on Eve first. Yeah. And he laughed himself all the way out of that guard. Of course, he had to crawl on his belly. But we have to turn from the spoof. Yeah. What was the spoof? What was the lie? God who made the world and all that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not need to dwell in temples made with human hands. Nor is he served with human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and things. All things. God is not in need of us. And in the ancient days, all of those gods needed the good, steady workers in order to contribute to the temple, you know, make the sacrifices, get the, get the animals, get everything together, and then all have their great sense of loyalty in order to appease their gods. If you go to the ancient Near Eastern parallels and you read the story of Gilgamesh, when they wipe out all of the world because they're noisy, this is the gods that they served. The, the gods got upset because the humans were just loud. And so they decided to flood the whole world and kill everybody. And then they forgot that they can't eat unless the human beings are making sacrifices. And then Gilgamesh gets off the boat and starts cooking up something. And everyone comes running around. All the gods are smelling the beautiful sacrifice. And they're like, hooray, we're not going to die because one of them lived. This is God. These are the people that they serve. What nonsense, right? And yet, this is the deceit that these gods needed these human beings. Do we buy into that deceit? You know, we look around. How many of the world religions are slave religions? If you do these five things in Islam, you might escape fiery hell, or you might come out eventually. Declare your allegiance, give to the poor, pray five times a day, visit, all right? Make the pilgrimage to Mecca. All right, we, we have to do these things, or else you go to hell. Keep the law. If you don't keep the law perfectly, you go to hell. Or in light of the missing sacrifice system, we might add extra good works to the law. That's the current Jewish position. We have all of these incredible things. Buddhism, we have to detach ourselves from all things and have no attachment to anything so that when I die, I have neutral karma so I can leave the karma system. And I got to work really hard at not caring about anything. Satan has enslaved the world. And then he's infiltrated the church. How many of us believe that if we don't do certain things, God won't be pleased with us? <laughs> I, if I, but <laughs> again, it, it's important because God's calling us to the same level that we have achieved. You know, to those of you that have been sanctified, live to the same level with which you have achieved. And of course, Paul's doing that tongue in cheek. As many of you as become perfect, keep being perfect. Um, none of us have achieved that level, but. What God is calling us to is continue growing in him. The deceit that we put on ourselves that comes through different denominations sometimes is that somehow we can merit his favor. Somehow I'll earn God's love. And if I sin, then he'll stop loving me until I get it right. And that's not true, just as a parent doesn't stop loving the child when they break the rules. But rather they... they put discipline on the child in order to train the child how they should go, and then the relationship is restored. But you know, as parents, you don't stop loving your kid. You might be a little peeved at them, but that's the human side. God wants to see you be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't need you to accomplish his goals. He wants to use you. So don't buy in the deceit there. 
And when you sin, don't be deceived into thinking God is holding his wrath against you. And so you're going to hide like they did in the garden because the wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ. And so you fall, you go immediately to your heavenly father and you tell him everything and you ask for forgiveness and he'll hold you in his arms. And there's nothing but love there. We sang about his love. The other spoof, they deceived themselves. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their, of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far. They should be able to look around and see the work of God everywhere. Amen. The fact that there are nations, the fact that there are people that look differently than me, the fact that one nation conquers another and conquers another, and yet the, the whole flow of human history points to God. It points to God, and yet we deceive ourselves into thinking it's all chance. I mean, I love this thing. How many, um, who, who's the father of us all? He made from one man every nation of mankind. One of the big deceits today is that rather than focus on God and how to live as one of his children, we'll focus on man and we'll look at all the ways that we can um, try to cut this and, and organize this and, and miss the reality that we're all brothers and sisters, that we're all, you know, one thing that every human shares is the sin of our parents. The unification of mankind can be found in our all universal confession of sin. And if we would all do that, not just one group or another group, but if we would all confess the sin of Adam and Eve that we've inherited and then participated in voluntarily, then we could have the baseline to heal. Yet we still couldn't do it because we wouldn't have the power. Because the power then can only come through the new man, Jesus Christ. And all of this going on today is a deception that Satan knows is un, unfit to solve anything. We're going to lift up this group and put this group down because this group was here and this group was here and we'll somehow coordinate some sort of uh, whack-a-mole where we'll get all the moles planted into the game so that nobody's elevated. Isn't that wonderful? I think all the moles would like to come out and quit getting hit with a hammer. <laughs> the only way to be elevated, though, is to be brought into the new man, Jesus Christ. And when we are in Christ and we share in the sanctification, the holiness, the perfect and true life of Jesus, we see everything differently. And we go out of our way to do good to our brothers and sisters, whatever they look like. And that is the truth. But we've deceived ourselves, and that deception is painful. It cheats us out of God's plan. The other thing is this idea that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, but he's not far from each of us. God is not far. But we've made it seem like God has abandoned us, and all we have is human resources, psychology, education, politics, warfare. All the tools mankind can bring to the muster is all that we have to help us in this world. Because God has left us, or God doesn't exist. That deception is where we, why we find ourselves why we find ourselves today. If we would all just turn to God and repent, what world issue could not be solved? Imagine if all the world leaders that we look at and kind of despise bowed knee before Christ tomorrow and were truly converted. 
And rather than say, how do I get rid of this group of people that's blocking my building plan and put them in concentration camps so we have room for the Olympics? Sorry, was that too specific? If we would, just, just imagine what would happen overnight if the leadership of China became Christian. What would happen, real Christians? What would happen if North Korea, if the leader would bow his knee before Jesus today and not tomorrow? The world would be changed. And God is not hard to find. He is looking. He is shouting every morning when the sun rises. I made that. When the moon comes up and it illuminates, I made that. Turn to me. But they are blinded by the lie. But God has overlooked the time of ignorance. But no longer. Today he calls all men everywhere to repent. And that's where Paul really sticks it. It is time to reject the lie. It's time to turn away from the lies, the lies that we buy in, the lies that say you're not anything more than a glorified animal, the lies that say that you were not made specially in God's image with dignity inherent in your creation, the lie that says you don't know if you're a boy or a girl, the lie that says chromosomes have no meaning, the lie that says that men uh, don't need to lead their homes, the lie that says women don't need to honor their husbands, the lies that the world has told us that have made us miserable over the last two generations, we need to reject it. Turn away and face God. And take up the glorious calling that he has for you if you would repent. And of course, we repent by not claiming power, but by bowing our necks, by bowing our knees and saying, Lord God, I confess my sin. I confess my sin, and I give you my life. And if we would do that, when the judgment day comes, oh, what a glorious day it will be. There's a reason Christians sing and praise about the end of the world. You ever wonder how sadistic that must seem to the world? We're always running around singing, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, the tribes shall be, you know, this is the end of the world. It's going to be burning up in a fiery ball, and we're running around like, yeah, this is going to be great. No wonder. The world's probably like, those people are crazy. <laughs> because we know that when that comes, that, oh, there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more sorrow. All of the problems that we have created and perpetuate will be solved, and God himself will be our king. We celebrate that. It won't be a good day for many. Because Jesus says he's coming, and he's going to divide the people on the right and the left, the sheep and the goats. And there's going to be many that will, in order to make to make it a glorious kingdom, those that are not loyal to the king will be dismissed. It will be a terrible day for some, but for us it will be a day of vindication, victory, and glory. He says that you must reject the spoof, reject the lie, the hoax, and then accept the proof. Trust the proof. He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, they said, because he's preaching the resurrection. Verse 18. And then Paul tries to make it very clear. God is declaring that all men everywhere should repent. Why? Because he's fixed a day. The day is fixed. God knows the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Easter is coming. If you want to know why we follow Christ, it's because you can't find his tomb. Amen. And if you found it, there wouldn't be anyone in it. Right. It wasn't his anyway. He borrowed it. Amen. He just needed it for a few days. 
Jesus Christ, up from the grave he arose. And if you ask anyone to investigate that, it will change their life. The case for Christ, we watched that last year. And what do we find? This man determined to crush this terrible belief and end Christianity ends up being a great Christian himself, writing books, proclaiming the resurrection. The resurrection is the proof. And so I challenge you, says Paul, find me another. Find me another man who was raised by God from the dead and is seated currently in heaven and is waiting for the day that God puts it all under his feet so that he will come. And he will come in power. If you can invalidate that claim, then Christianity is done. They're still working on it. 2,100 years later, they cannot put an end to this belief. And it is something that we not only know through history, we also know in our hearts. Those of us that have met the risen Christ personally know that it's true. And because it is true, our lives are forever changed. When we have baptism, we say buried in the likeness of his death, but that's not where it starts. We don't drown everyone in the church. They come up, and they have come up as though they were buried in death, and they've been raised in life tied to the living Savior. And the truth is that it's been proven through the resurrection. So what do we do? Do we, do we meditate on the resurrection? Do we think about the resurrection? Do you tell people about the resurrection? Sometimes we spend all our time talking about the goodies that Christianity offers, and we forget about the most important thing. Christianity is life or death for the soul. And because of that, this is something so serious, it's not about Jesus is going to heal your marriage. He can heal your marriage. We pray that he will heal your marriage. But someday your marriage is going away anyway. He will heal your soul. And that's more important. And we need to bring it back to the resurrection our whole claims of hope are on the resurrection. And so many Christians today, actually when surveyed, say they don't believe in the resurrection. You're not a Christian. The proof is the resurrection. We go to 1 Corinthians 15 and spend a whole you know, day, maybe week, just going through the importance of the resurrection. If Christ's resurrection is true, then we have complete hope in Christ's power over death. The resurrection still demands that every person today make a decision. And this is where we'll close. Some of you here may not know Christ. You may have bought into some sort of cultural thing with Christianity. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and your parents basically raised you as a Christian. And because of that, you have bought into this, I'm a Christian because I inherited it. But you've never bowed your knee before Christ. You've never let the gospel overwhelm you and make a statement to Christ himself, Lord, you have my life. Please forgive me of my sin. Forgiveness, by the way, is meaningless if he doesn't take your life. You'll just get more sin. But because he rose from the dead, he has victory over sin, which when it's fully mature leads to death. And he has victory over death itself. And so today, if you would like to be changed and transformed, if you would like to find God, then it's three steps. You have to really want to. You have to really ask for God to take the blinders off and open your mind to see the truth. And when you see the truth, you will see the lie for what it is, and you can turn away and reject it. Too many people actually know what it is, by the way, but they won't reject it because they like it too much. It's the rocks that are hiding all of the critters and junk and bugs that love the darkness more than light. And you remove that and you shed light on it and too many of them run right back for the darkness. But when you know the truth, you see the lie for what it is and you can reject it. And then you put your 
faith in the truth, the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you give your life to Christ, he will change you. And I love this. Some joined and believed. Dionysus and a woman named Damaris. Their names are forever written in the book of life because they believed. So as we close, I would invite you to take this time. If you do not know Christ, it's time to make a commitment to Jesus this morning. And so the band we're going to play, if you'd come up. And if you know Christ, I would ask you to take this time as we sing and pray for your lost family and friends that you know are lost. That you know one day when Christ comes again in glory, they were going to be separated from you for eternity because they have not bowed knee, they have bought the lie, and we need a supernatural act of God to knock them off the arrogant horses like Paul and to let them see the light. So please, if you need to know Christ, you come and give your life to Jesus this morning. And if not, as we sing, make this song a prayer for the lost.